0: Today on the Scott Radley show on 900 CHML
1: earlier today, or at some point today, Lynx air wrapped up operations at Hamilton airport, uh, as it filed for credit protection, not just here, but it was one of the places that it was flying out of was here. And this follows swoop that you'll recall, stopped flying out of Hamilton because it ran into financial problems back in the fall. And to be quite honest, I can't remember all the lists of low-cost budget airlines that at one time or another have called Hamilton home and that have many of them then gone, came and went. And I do start to wonder why this continues to happen. Uh, Marvin Ryder is with the DeGroote School of Business. He's someone who uh, I'm sure can shed some light on this. Marvin, how are you today?
0: I'm just fine, thanks. Glad to be with you.
1: Really appreciate you being back. So why does this happen? Because, I mean, as I say, I'm not even going to go through the whole list because it would take me about an hour to find them all because there's a long list. Why does this keep happening?
0: Well, first, a couple of things put in context. Uh, You're absolutely right. The list is long. We've had 20 airlines come and go in the last 20 years. So this is almost an annual occurrence at Hamilton Airport. Now, why does it happen? Well, almost all of these airlines have one thing in common, And that is that they are an ultra low cost carrier, which means for the consumer, great news, you're going to pay a very low airfare. But for the airline itself, it has a big problem. It doesn't make very much money on each flight. So it has to fly very full planes. We talk about this as a load factor. You've got to be somewhere between 85 and 90 percent full just to break even. To make a profit, you've got to be closer to 95 to 100 percent full. Now, when you start an airline, and Lynx is a great example, it started less than two years ago. It was in June of 2022 when Lynx appeared. Uh, Are you going to fly an airline that's brand new? No. So it takes a while. There are these people, we call them early adopters, who take the chance early. If they've had a good flight, they tell friends. And over time, you begin to see the load factor go up. So when you start an airline like this, you actually don't plan to make money in the first year, but you do plan to see that load factor keep going up, going up, going up. And then eventually you make money and eventually he'll be fine. The problem is that most of them don't get to that point. It takes longer to get to the point that they have load, higher load factors than they had anticipated. And when the cash runs out, then they don't, they can't function anymore. And this is exactly what happened with links. And Scott, before I hand it back to you, just one you don't mind a correction, Sure. Swoop Airlines didn't go under because of a cash flow problem or a failure problem. In that situation, Swoop was the discount line of WestJet and WestJet's pilots went on strike a little over a year ago or around a year ago. And part of the settlement was that all pilots, including Swoop pilots had to be paid at the same rate. Well, one of the reasons why Swoop was able to offer the lower cost fares was that the pilots and staff weren't paid at the same rate. The minute you make them pay the same rate, WestJet said, well, then it doesn't make any sense, of course, to have Swoop. So Swoop didn't fail. It just was a case that it wasn't economical to operate it. And in that situation, yes, it hurt Hamilton Airport because WestJet, in winding down Swoop, said, well, we'll cover some of those same routes with WestJet flights. But WestJet has not returned yet to Hamilton Airport in that kind of volume.
1: Fair enough, and I do appreciate that. I don't, I uh, don't object to being corrected at all when I'm wrong, um, which happens. Um, so, one thing I always wonder though about Hamilton Airport, wildly successful airport for cargo, an unbelievable yep. success story as far as cargo goes. But again, the you just mentioned the number twenty carrier companies in twenty years. What is there anything Hamilton Airport? could do about this? Could it be more discriminating about what airlines, commercial airlines, it allows to fly out of here? Or are they in a position to say, if you want to come, we'll take you and hope for the best?
0: Well, that's really the situation, the second one. So again, to position this, Hamilton Airport's primary success story, and it is a successful airport, is on the commercial side. I would be much worrier. So Lynx accounted to 5% of the uh, passenger traffic, but the biggest volume of flights are people like FedEx and UPS and Curelator flying out of the airport. Amazon is located at the airport. They fill planes with cargo to go out. And part of the reason why it's such a successful commercial airline or commercial hub is that it doesn't have any curfew. So a plane can fly in and out at any time. Now, Scott, I know you, you have a great interest in sports, and you probably know that the Blue Jays typically fly in and out of Hamilton Airport because... You don't know what time the baseball game is going to end. Therefore, you don't know what time you're coming back to town. At Pearson, that's a problem. Around 1 a.m., flights flights end. You can't bring any planes in until 6 a.m. in the morning. They have this five-hour curfew. Hamilton doesn't have that. So that's our big competitive advantage. Now, going back to your first part of your premise, um, Hamilton Airport always has the welcome mat out. I am sure... Kathy Puckering and the other leadership up there are already on the phones talking to people. Well, now that Lynx is leaving, hey, how about you think about coming to Hamilton? The problem is we can't dictate the terms. We are simply putting out a welcome mat and airlines are going to come for whatever reasons they have. The biggest problem Hamilton has is that as an alternate destination to Toronto, it works very well if your final destination is Oakville or Burlington or Mississauga, You know, not that much difference in travel time. But if you're planning to fly into Toronto and then travel on to Scarborough or Markham or Oshawa, Hamilton's really not a good alternative. And that's why you see many of them say, I'd rather just fly in and out of Toronto. Uh, And there's a I guess there's also a, a, if you will, a blindness factor. Many Torontonians can't imagine coming to Hamilton (laughs) for a flight. Once they do it, they often say, hey, this was a lot easier than flying in and out of Pearson. But it takes a lot of effort to get them to make that first visit to Hamilton Airport.
1: Do you think though that, and maybe the fact that there's been 20 and 20 tells me my answer already, that people continue to want to do it, but does there come a point at which people become reluctant or concerned about booking a flight out of Hamilton for this reason? I have some lack of confidence that when it comes time for my flight that it's still going to be there and am I going to be putting myself in a position where I could be trying to fly on a carrier that's a little wobbly or may not even be taking off?
0: Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. Now, note again that Hamilton plays home to different kinds of passenger flights. Obviously, if WestJet is flying out of Hamilton, we're not worried. The charter airlines, the Sun Wings of the world, again, you're not terribly worried because they've been around a long time. And they're very, very reliable. But whenever a new discount airline, so you might know there's a a Norwegian, might even be called Norwegian Airlines, or it was called Play, that flies out of Hamilton, takes you partway to to, uh, not Norwegian, it's Icelandic Air flies to Iceland, and then goes on to Europe, there would be some people say, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. So again, general tip, Scott, to any of your listeners, if you're attracted to these low fares, the way you minimize your risk is to pay with a credit card. If you had paid for a flight on Lynx, today is its last day, and you're flying in a week, you're out of luck, you're not going to have that flight, but your credit card company will make you whole, and then it'll be the credit card company that seeks reimbursement from the airline if you paid cash you're now a creditor of the airline you're going to get some money but it could take more than a year for it to come back so if you want to take a chance with a discount carrier always 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 use your credit card
1: you know the shame about this we got to run the the unfortunate part about this is that uh, maybe you have flown more twice i've flown out of hamilton airport or even out of and come back into And I got to tell you, it is a joy. I mean, being able to hit the ground and be home in as short order as you are. And without all the lineups, like it, if they could somehow, and again, uh, cargo phenomenal, but if they could make this a thing to make it. So there were way more flights and I don't know how you do it. Boy, Marvin, it, it is a, it is a great place to fly out of.
0: It is Hamilton airports, always trying it, but I think we also need some help from, from Pearson in a way to, to, uh complain. I think it's fascinating that Air Canada is now going to offer a premium bus service from Hamilton Airport to Pearson rather than bringing flights to Hamilton Airport. Air Canada, listen to us carefully. Bring some flights here. You'll benefit, I'm sure.
1: Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Thanks for doing this, Marvin. Thank you.
0: Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: We have non-elected Judges in Ontario and in Canada, as you well know, not like in the States where it's a political thing. We appoint parties, governments appoint judges here. And there is a committee that has a number of members on it that help select who the judges should be. And in the last number of days, the premier of this province, Doug Ford, has been under fire in some corners because he has put some of his former staffers on this committee. And he has not been shy to say, yeah, they're going to select judges that fit with our political views. I'm not going to be swearing in NDP or liberal, either small or large L judges. Should this be a shock to people to hear this, or is this something that probably should be expected. Jeff Manishin is a criminal lawyer with Ross McBride here in town, former Crown Attorney joins us now. Jeff, how are you today? Just great, Scott. How are you? I am well. Well, were you shocked beyond words when you heard that uh, a political party, a government, was going to be appointing judges that may have aligned with their political views?
2: Well, the way I'd phrase it is this, I I certainly was shocked and outraged uh, at the comments of the Premier with respect to the process he intends to use for that appointment. Um, because what he's, but I guess I wasn't surprised at it, because, uh, Scott, I felt this has been coming for the last couple of years. I'd call it ideology creep, potentially by an ideologically based, well, premier. Because, you see, what happened was, to give you the background, in 1995, the provincial provincial government set up an advisory committee. Remember this, the attorney general of the province appoints provincial court judges, Ontario court judges. But the attorney general can get the input and recommendations from this committee that was established with representatives of the community, the judiciary, and the legal profession. And it worked beautifully from 1995. We had a system of appointment of of judges that was outstanding, impartial. Sure, ultimately the government in power makes the appointment, but we didn't see them ideologically based, Scott. We had a fair, impartial process that was not driven by we want to see a certain outcome. And it worked beautifully that sounds pretty good right we'd want to keep that right we call that a leading question scott
1: no but and i and i think yes uh, ideally in utopia we would love to have that as the reality but i don't believe for a second jeff that while doug ford may be the one who's been most blatant about saying it i don't believe for a second that the former Kathleen Wynne, Dalton McGinty liberal government was appointing a bunch of conservatives to the courts. They they may not have said it out loud, but this has always happened.
2: Oh, actually, Scott, you may be too cynical because I have to tell you that I know a lot of the judges, like know them personally, judges that have been appointed in the last twenty years and they weren't specifically aligned with one party or the other yeah the appointment was made by the provincial government but i have to tell you it wasn't based on them holding a particular ideology and it wasn't based on being affiliated with a particular party now i can tell you that there certainly a there have been some criticism of the federal appointment process that you'll see potentially a higher percentage of people who support a particular party that might get the appointments but the beauty of the provincial appointment process got was it didn't really do that, so much so that, I don't know if you remember it, Erwin Cothler, when he was justice minister, he wanted to reform the federal appointment process. And you know what he wanted to use as his ideal? What we do in Ontario. So we had, yes, you had appointments made by a political party in power, but you didn't have it based on what they thought or what you'd expected them to do.
1: Let me, okay, so let me let me rephrase it differently, and I would agree with you wholeheartedly that um, what Doug Ford said has been beyond what anyone else has says about that he would look not to elect, uh, not to appoint, pardon me, uh, liberals or NDPs. But going back to my point, I don't believe that in previous governments, conservative or liberal, let's use small L liberal, small C conservative. I don't believe that those governments have brought people in to sit on courts that oppose the political views or the political philosophies of the government in power.
2: Well, I've talked with friends of mine who have been appointed, and they've gone through the interview process with the Judicial Appointment Advisory Committee. And sometimes, Scott, they've had to go through two and three and four interviews. I mean, it has been a very carefully designed process, meant to be able to ensure you have an impartial individual who's going to be appointed as a judge. You have members of the community as well as judiciary and legal profession. And believe me, they take care and are trying to get the best possible people. It got narrowed down. It used to be. All they recommended was two. To the, and the AG was basically given a choice of two. But it wasn't based on what do they think, it, other than the commitment to fair and impartial justice. Here's the changes. Number one, in, 2000, in 2021, Doug changed the structure of the committee. And in relation to the legal representation, it used to come from the Law Society, Ontario Bar Association, Federation. Now it's done by the Attorney General. He gets a list of a couple of names from those organizations. He makes the pick. And in fact, further... He expanded the potential candidates to six instead of two. But significantly, he's making no bones about it, as you said. He's not simply appointing them based on their political affiliation. It's clear if they're NDP or liberal, don't bother applying. But it isn't only that. We want to ensure that the people who we do pick from the Conservative Party are judges who are going to keep guys in jail. I'm putting like-minded people that believe in what we believe in keeping people in jail. Guess what, Scott? Doug didn't read the Charter of Rights. Doug didn't read the fact that under Section 11 of the Charter, everybody has the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty according to law in a fair and public hearing, public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal. Oops. <laughs> now we know this. Doug responds to public pressure, right? We saw it with respect to Greenbelt. I think we saw it with respect to his proposed appointment to the, to the Commission of the OPP. This is a situation where if the public is sufficiently outraged to say, wait a minute, we don't want to exclude liberals and NDPers from being able to be judges. They might be really good. Don't do that, Doug. Public pressure is what could maybe get him to change his mind, but it takes a lot of it.
1: Should we have expected that, we'll call this a trickle down, and you've alluded to it a second ago, should we have expected that whether it's him or whether it's some other premier at some point that this was eventually going to happen because... Again, whether I'm too cynical about provincial appointments, we know, look at the Supreme Court, we know that this has been happening in the federal government with federal judge appointments for a long time. Is it just a natural thing that eventually this is going to come down to the lower levels?
2: Well, I'd actually take a reverse tack because from 1995 to 2021, Scott, our provincial court appointments were... Truly, I, I genuinely believe they didn't have a basis in any kind of political affiliation or ideological. At the Supreme Court of Canada level, I believe that the government power for the most part, is trying to ensure we have a balance to the court, not only geographically, but I'd even say in terms of views. And might you see some appointments by some prime ministers who want judges that might be aligned with their kind of thinking? Yeah, I, you know, I would say that probably has happened. But we were blessed in Ontario. We didn't have it happen here. And we didn't have to have it happen here we were doing fine. But when you have a premier who, quite candidly, is ignorant with respect to the justice system, and he wants to drive the ideological principles based on anecdotes, we have a skewed system. I'll give you a for instance. If Doug doesn't like the fact that there might have been somebody who committed an offense while out on bail and he didn't like the sentence the person got, did he have his crown attorney potentially appeal that sentence? If he had a situation with a justice of the peace, let somebody out on bail. Did he have his attorney general make sure crowns appeal, seek a bail review? You don't hear much about that. What you hear is the blunt instrument of, I want to skew the outcome. I want to stack the deck. I'm going to give you an example, Scott, and I'm not going to apply to be a judge. I've been around for too long. I've never applied. <laughs> okay. okay. But I was a crown for eight years, everything from murder on down. And then I switched to the defense I've defended everything from murder on down. And, Scott, I'd like to think when I come on your program, I don't generally pitch an ideology. I try and give you what I understand to be the way the system works. I have to acknowledge that over the years I've been a supporter of the Liberal Party, whether provincially or federally. I've done all kinds of cases, all kinds of work. Should I be disqualified from being able to apply to be a judge? Should the province of Ontario be deprived of somebody with my skill set from sitting in judgment of the community? And it's not just me. And here's the other thing, by the way, my colleagues in this Vance Bar and I've noted over the last few years, you've seen a significant number. Proportionally, it seems like there are in fact it is, there are a lot more crowns that are appointed than defense. You don't see a balance. Now, there are some terrific there are a lot of terrific crowns that could be that could be in our great judges, but you might want to see some balance. Yeah. We haven't seen that much. And here's the other thing. So the amendments came in in 2021, Scott. They have a three-year term. Gee, it's 2024. We got a couple of positions open on the committee. Are these are the best people to be able to advise the attorney general on appointments or people that he's candid, he's open, he's transparent, will tow his personal party line. I, 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 now. And unless we complain, that's what we're going to be stuck
1: with. I I do, I agree with you on the idea that by saying it this way, it's problematic. I am, but I'm, as even as I'm looking and, you know, we've just been talking about whether it trickled down from federal, there are six justices on the Supreme Court of Canada right now that were uh, appointed by Justin Trudeau. I would I have not studied each of their backgrounds and they may not have all been active members of the Liberal Party. I would bet you all the money I have, though, that none of them politically would tilt towards conservative ideology. At the very least, they would be friendly to Justin Trudeau's political positions because that's every leader when they are looking to fill courts. They always, very often, shall I say, do this.
2: I don't think it's quite as simple as that. I mean, Justin Trudeau has said he wants the Supreme Court judges to be bilingual, and he's looked for that. He's wanted to see recognition of indigenous communities, and he's looked after that. He's looked to be able to see that we have representation from minorities, and he's endeavored to look after that. Scott, it's a lot more complex in appointing a Supreme Court judge than just do I think they'll go along with the kind of philosophy I, I feel is right. It's And and by the way, too, Scott, whatever you might feel about the federal appointment process, please, for today's discussion, let's park that, because it's completely different. And in fact, right now, unfortunately, we've got 70, I think there's something like 70 appointments at the federal level that haven't been filled. So I'm going to park discussion federally, because Doug Ford's done it provincially, and that's my beef.
1: And I I appreciate you sharing that, because it is a fascinating topic that uh, I know people have been talking about and will have opinions on. For sure. Uh, Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. Hey,
2: it's a great pleasure. And this is a topic, as you can probably gather, Scott, I feel very strongly about Really? Hopefully other people will too. <laughs> Th- thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Okay, bye.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Don Robertson is in as he is every Monday. He is the owner and operator of ComChoice Realty and the guy behind the Dundas Real McCoys. And... Um, former owner of Collins Hotel. I never used that one as an introduction, but that's mm, true. Duck Sports Bar, uh, And uh, a variety, a multitude of other things. If you are from the, ha- the greater Hamilton area, chances are you are familiar with Don Robertson. And if you're not, well.
3: Shut the radio off.
1: No, no, don't do that. <laughs> no, don't do that. That's very bad advice. That's bad for From business. a wise man, yes. Uh, you know what? Uh, I said this off the very top of the show. Do you know what today is the, or this week is the anniversary of? Big sports anniversary yesterday. 47 years Hang ago on. yesterday. Miracle on ice. Uh, no, but.
3: This week it is. Yeah, well,
1: it may be, but no, 47 years ago, that was 1980. This is 1977 we're looking. What happened? It is hockey, and it is something that was made into a movie. Slapshot. Slapshot was released 47 years ago, a movie that still holds up to this day.
3: It's a classic. It's, it's a classic. We used to go on bus trips and always watch it, and uh, Spud Kenny Man coached and played in that era. Yes. And the guys would sit around and say, so most of this isn't true. And he looked at me and said, most of the good stuff they can't even
1: put on. Yes, yes.
3: It's all true. Almost all of it.
1: Well, I mean, I'm sure most people know the story behind the story, but Nancy Dowd. You've had her on? No. No? No, I've had Ogie Oglethorpe. I've had Goldie Goldthorpe on. Uh. uh but Thunder Na- Bay. Yeah, but Nancy Dowd um, was the writer. Yes. And brilliant writer. And she, her brother was Ned Dowd, who played, um, who was the other one? Uh, um, not, uh, anyway, I'll think of it in a second who, uh, who he played, uh, cause I'm drawing a blank. He played one of the other bad guys. Um, not Captain Hook. Captain Hook McCracken just died this week as yes, well, the real did. life guy. I'll think of it in a second. Anyway. Um, so Nancy Dowd's brother played for the Johnstown Jets. Yes. Which were then det- turned into the chiefs and she sent, she started hearing tape or hearing conversations that he would tell stories. And she finally sent a tape recorder with him to turn on in the dressing room (laughs) to start catching the, um, the, uh, the stories. And so about 85% of what is in Slapshot were things that actually happened on that team. So he did play Ogie Oglethorpe. Yeah. Oh, did Ned, he? Ned Dowd played Ogie Oglethorpe. Uh-huh. Okay, I was so yeah, it was based on Goldie Goldthorpe. I was confused. But yeah, so the guy who this whole, that Slapshot really got its genesis from plays Ogie Oglethorpe in uh, in the movie, Ned Dowd.
3: Well, and you had the real Ogie on. Yes, we did. And asking him, well, was this true? Yeah.
1: Everything that we, every is, rumor. Is this true? <laughs> he, he did said you was, get out of jail to play? Yep. Yep. Were you shot? Yep. Stabbed? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't even remember all the things I asked him. And the best part was, and, and I, we got to dig this up one of these days. Um, he's still around. we got to dig it up. But his voice sounds exactly like you would expect a guy who was turned into Ogie Oglethorpe to sound like. But anyway, the, anyway, um, it is still a, uh, it is still one of the all-time great it's, movies. It's a be- starring Paul Newman. Yep, and you know a who else? A hockey
3: movie. Starring Paul Newman.
1: And I read yesterday, there was a story about the making of it. You know, uh, which former player slash NHL coach appears in the movie. Bruce Boudreau. Bruce Boudreaux. And according to this story, now I cannot vouch for this. I think I read it in the athletic. So I'm assuming it's going to be true. The apartment, Paul Newman's apartment in Slapshot was Bruce Boudreaux's real apartment. Really? That's, that was something I read. I think that was in the athletic. Yeah, anyway, he's
3: down helping out Niagara ice dogs. Now the, another good one is, uh, the, uh, the big game. If you recall on everybody, every crazy guy in it, they come out with the, against the, Syracuse, the Indian head, uh, yes. dress on, you know, that was Larry Maverty who, uh, played senior in Bramford for the Alexanders and coached in Belleville and Kingston forever shouldn't talk about this. I'm going to mention this, but my grandkids are listening, so I don't want them to think that this is hockey. Harriet and Elliot were over for dinner tonight with Stephen, and they're probably listening and thinking, is that what hockey's like? Because that's not what hockey's like now.
1: Well, someone else that I've had on the show before who uh, is, and again, what's funny about this is there are some guys who were legit, like the Hansons, the guy who played the Hansons, the Carlsons, who I played, played in the NHL Hansons and the WHA, and they were tough yeah. guys. Like they were, but um, John Gofton, who played, I believe, in senior hockey as well. He
3: did. He played for the Bramford Alexanders and has been running a rental business in Tilson. Yes, and he's been I think been he's on. still there. Yes,
1: and he's been on the show, and he's the guy has at he? the very beginning who plays Brophy, who is inebriated inebriated the game and goes into the corner and gets hit and wets himself. Wets himself in the corner.
3: <laughs> if somebody hits me, I'm going to... Wet myself. That's not what he said. <laughs> and he gets hit like two minutes later. Yeah. Laser. <laughs> and
1: a like a, a lovely, a lovely guy. And yet, for all the things that he's done in hockey, that will be forever his claim to fame. It, well, his thing. Anyone who sees him will always go, "Oh, you're the guy who peed yourself." <laughs> no way around that one. Anyway, uh, so it seems like an appropriate time though, because this is um, uh, with Slapshot being out. Uh, there was a really interesting story. There, there's a guy who is just newly arrived in the NHL. He's a young guy, a guy named Matt Rempi. Great big guy. 6'8", six six, eight, eight, 240 pounds. TSN has a really interesting video slash question about him. And I think this ties into, you know, hockey in general, uh, is tough guy Rempi a disaster waiting to happen. And they're not talking about, you know, that he's going to give up a key goal by being on the ice. They're saying because he's so big and so tough and so strong and so willing to drop the gloves at a time when most teams have got rid of guys like him, so there's not a lot of even combatants in the NHL. Is is this something that you look at and you go this is a this is a thing that's going to be a problem for the NHL? What do you think?
3: Well, <clears throat> it could be a disaster for a willing participant that shouldn't be a willing participant. Uh, I don't know much about the kid. I mean, he's got famous. He was in a great slugfest. Yep. Right this, off the bat this weekend, and uh, he's young and he's fighting against men that know what they're doing. So he'll have to learn the craft a little bit. As long as he's not running around jumping um, Austin Matthews and and uh, Morgan Riley and people of that ilk, he'll get. Like that that will not end well for the National Hockey League but it may it may have other teams thinking we better have at least one physical presence around the leaps have one- mm-hmm. Reeves yep and he would be the heir apparent but you're right like Reeves is no kid now and you start fighting a six foot8 21 year old that's full of um that stuff, yep Yep. And, um, but,
1: but so many teams that I guess the question becomes, and I think it's a fair, I mean, kudos to TSN for asking, cause I think it's a fair question. Most guys in the NHL, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, everybody in the league would have somewhere along the way had a fight growing up. Everybody would've. Yep. And a bunch of them would've had a lot of fights. So you're at least familiar with how to look after yourself. You may lose the fight, but it's not going to be something out of the blue. Nowadays, I don't know how many guys, I, I'd love to know what percentage of NHL players have ever even had a real fight. I mean, I think Austin Matthews got a major penalty one time, but to call it a fight would be to embarrass everyone involved.
3: Well, yeah. It's,
1: the, the, I think the number probably, Don, would be under 20% of NHL players who have had a fight today.
3: Versus 30 years ago, one, it would have been five who didn't.
1: Yeah, it would have been 100%. Yeah. Even Wayne Gretzky had a fight once. It was You can find it online. It's really embarrassing. Yeah. But it was it was called a fight. <laughs> it was called a fight. Yeah. Technically. But, but they're no.
3: not. I mean there the, the, there's the day of uh Ty Domi and uh, Bob Prober going to center race and and uh Domi pretending he's putting the belt on because he won one of them. Yeah. But those th- those days are history in, in hockey. And and to your point, um I'm just so seeing are the real McCoys are A little older vintage than the National Hockey League for average age, but probably at best 60% of my guys have probably been in a fight, Mm -hmm. and 40% maybe so-called fights, but it's so if that era has changed, the National Hockey League, which is really younger than our league by probably six or seven years on average, like... I mean, Mitch Marner might've been in a fight. I very
1: much doubt it. I very much doubt it. I mean, the OHL at one time was a league that had a lot of fighting in it. All junior hockey had a lot of fighting in it. Now it's, you might have, well, I'm, I'm trying to remember from past years when I was doing a lot more covering of the Bulldogs, but you might have five games or seven games in the entire season when there is a fight. Like, saying that you're going to come out and see a fight every night is far from oh. what's going to happen. There, It's very rare now. And it's often one or two guys that are...
3: You knew who was going to
1: fight. You knew... Well, if there was going to be a fight, it was going to be one of those two, unless something really bizarre happened. Yeah. And so, again, I, I think that most guys in the league, and I have no idea what the how to find what the percentages, but I'm, I'm guessing 20% of guys in the NHL now have had a fight. And so if you're in that position, and I don't know if this guy would challenge someone, and even if he, Don, even if it was not someone who was new to fighting, even if it was a veteran, you got a guy that big and that strong and that young and that fearless, you know, are are we at a point when you just, you fear that he even though he won't be doing anything different from anyone else fighting, he's just so much bigger and stronger that he could do some real damage.
3: Well, again, I'm gonna go back to how we, uh, how I started it. it if, if you get um, if something terrible happens, and you were a willing participant, shame on you. Like who in their right mind wants to fight a six foot eight tough guy? Nobody wanted to fight Tai Domi. Yep. and he was five ten, five nine. This guy's he's a foot taller on skates
1: be 611
3: 240 pounds like who's fighting that guy
1: can't even reach him
3: well <laughs> really like who who's gonna fight him so if you're crazy enough to fight him you may not like the consequences although the guy he fought didn't do bad
1: no there there are guys I I mean look I, I don't want to um uh, you 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 are familiar. I mean, in your league, there was a tragic situation that happened with a fight. And that I think is the thing they're talking about is when someone is this big and this strong, even if the person's a willing combatant, could you end up with a really bad situation? And it doesn't mean that anyone did anything illegal or cheap or whatever. It's just, he's so big.
3: Yeah. It's, and it's, it's so not part of the game now. I mean, fighting is not part of hockey anymore.
1: Even the fighters, are except for him, are not fighting that much. How many fights has Ryan Reeves had this year? Two, or Two three. three, and in, in twenty five years ago, he would have had fifteen by now.
3: Oh, we used to. I mean, in senior hockey, I mean, when I read senior hockey, I mean there was there was four or five fights a night. But it's back in the seventies again, right? Now I don't think. I'm wrong in suggesting that we didn't have a fight in the regular season this year. I I don't think we had a fight. Hmm. Now, these guys are, I shouldn't say they're smarter, but they're going to work the next day, and, you know, what's... Unless somebody hacks somebody or really annoys them, you're not likely going to see anybody drop the gloves. The The dropping of the gloves to change the tempo of the game is long gone. There are a couple guys in the league that chirp a lot and quite frankly our guys kind of laugh at him because it's it's kind of silly because it's not part of the game anymore when i had to say, say to a guy three games ago he was going by chirp and i said stop you're scaring all our players of <laughs> course our guys start lapping. now he's now he's ready to spear me in the throat but <clears> throat> you know what i mean it's, it's just that intimidation part is really not part of the game if you're going to get into playoff hockey and and, pl- and play what they call heavy hockey, then there's going to be a lot more hitting, but that's that's not fighting.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it is definitely uh, different times, and I mean, e- even we you know we started with slap shot. Even once upon a time, especially in the minors, it was far more. Oh, I uh, uh, there is still there's still fighting in the minor in the minors, but it's not remotely. Not remotely what it was. When
3: you, the federal league, which <laughs> slap shot, but there is a federal league, which you know there's. I have guys call me in the summertime and said, you know, I've been playing pro the last three years, and where have you been playing? I've been playing the federal league. I'm going. Okay, well, I'm I'm not sure you can play for us, uh, but you know we'll have a conversation. Come for a skate, but playing in the federal league doesn't mean you can play in our league because it's just. It's only professional hockey because they pay the guys 150 bucks a week to do it. I mean, it's not and give them a place to live. So at that level, for the entertainment factor, there is more fisticuffs. Southern Pro League used to have more of it. So it kind of seems the further down the road or the ladder and the pecking order of caliber, there's more of that because nobody's coming out of their seats with, you know, fabulous plays all the time. But there's, you know, there's like junior B guys, uh, the American junior B and junior A system, and and uh, um, NC uh, the third level of NC double A hockey. That's who's playing in those. But the coast has got, I mean, they but they still have some guys that'll scrap a little bit because they sell the buildings out, and. You know what? I whether you like it or not, the fact is that if there's two heavyweights squaring off at center ice, there's a lot better chance there's more people standing than if somebody's taking a penalty shot.
1: Uh, it is true. It is true. And I'm just as you're talking, I'm just looking this up. There was um, I'm talking about the minors, and I can't find. I I got the wrong name here, but uh, years ago, went down to a game in Port Huron, the United Hockey League at the time. And the Port Huron beacons. And the reason I went, I was covering it because Brent Gretzky was the last of the hockey playing Gretzkys. And he was playing there and doing well as a player. But that league, he had nothing to do with the stuff that was going on. But there was a guy on his team that, if memory serves, had four fights in the same game. Most guys now would not have that in a, I was going to say a season, but in a career.
3: It was probably three because after three they throw you out generally. But. But there would be guys that, well, we did had that long conversation about uh, the Bramper smoke that one week. Yeah. And Andy Beasel, we go to Thunder Bay. The, the places, will don't get into a fight. Well, it took about 18 seconds. He fought every, fought three times. Yeah. He fought in every period.
1: Uh, by the way, uh, Wayne Gretzky's lone NHL fight, January 3rd, 1981, against Neil Broughton of the Minnesota North Stars. And... Once again, if you, uh, if you go online and look at this fight, um, uh, there's not a lot in Wayne Gretzky's NHL career that he would be embarrassed of. I'm reasonably confident that, uh, that he would be embarrassed, and he dropped the gloves first. Uh, it was... Um, let's just say Wayne Gretzky's acumen in hockey was not in the pugilism. He was a bad fighter. So <laughs> He also weighed about 165 uh, pounds.
3: Uh, Ron Bernanke, our coach for years and years and years, was former captain of the Hamilton Steelhawks, when Bill LaForge, and Bill LaForge had some Kirk Thomas and Bob Probert, Todd Francis. He was on a line with um, Probert and Francis and got in a fight on the ice because Bernie wasn't scared. Probert followed him to the penalty box and say, don't don't ever do that again and embarrass us. We do this, not you. <laughs> Bernie may have been the captain that year because he was captain of the Steelhawks for a year or two. But, it, you know, Bob Probert comes over the, and calls him out saying, that's not what you do. So that, was there a lot of it then? That's the 80s. Yeah, there was, there were a
1: few guys. There were a few guys for sure. All right, Don, this is one of the most puzzling stories I've seen in sports, especially in the NHL in a while. Last week, we saw Gary Bettman is closely monitoring the Winnipeg Jets situation because their ticket sales have dipped and they need more season ticket sales or their future could be in jeopardy in Winnipeg. Meanwhile, the Arizona Coyotes continue to play to less than full houses in a 4,500-seat college stadium where they are the second tenant, and there is nothing but ongoing work and demand and desire that this is working great and we're going to find a home for them. What am I missing?
3: Well, it's, it's a quiet pep talk or a threat to Winnipeggers. You better buy tickets and support this team. Because the owners only have more money than three of the states in the,
1: in the U.S. Yeah, he's the richest man in Canada who owns it, David yes. Thompson.
3: But rich guys are rich because they're smart, and they don't like to be embarrassed. But I think it's just, you guys better pick up your socks, or we've taken your team before, and we'll do it again. Do
1: you think they would? Do you really think they would?
3: No. I, I, I said it's a it's a sales pitch. See, and, and this is, I mean... That's look, what I think it is. The,
1: anybody... In, in Winnipeg, who's listening to this and being seriously concerned the team is going to leave, knowing how the revenue sharing and everything in the NHL, you take a team like this and you move it to Atlanta for a third crack at a failure. Moving back. Moving back. Well, they were from Arizona before. They came up from Phoenix, right? Or was it Atlanta? I can't remember now. I've lost track. But anyway. Um, but yeah, you, you, no, they went down to Phoenix. The Coyotes were the Jets. Okay, and then Atlanta, yes, I got it. But yeah, you, you take a team from Winnipeg from a Canadian market that makes money and stick it in Atlanta that's a taker of money and you just hurt your business case. There's no way they're moving them out of a Canadian market.
3: No, I think it's a pep talk. Yeah. Just you guys better pick up your side. So the, 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 the frightening part of it is Winnipeg's at the top of the standings in the National Hockey League. Yeah. That, that's not a good omen. When you have one of the best teams in the NHL, what, what's it going to be like out there when they're rebuilding or they're winning 25 games? And
1: they a have a reasonably small 50. stadium, relatively speaking.
3: They have tra- <laughs> Traditionally, they, they have the smallest NHL hockey arena in the league.
1: I just think that Gary Bettman, and look, I'm not a Bettman basher. There's things that I don't love that he's done. Certainly, I think he's screwed Hamilton around at every turn. But I'm a realist enough to acknowledge that business-wise he has been commissioner while the NHL has grown into a multi-billion dollar business. I think that the, you know, there are good things he's done. There's bad things he's done, but I think he looks buffoonish to be on one hand talking about how we're, you know, like the fight to keep Arizona hockey going when you're now literally playing in a, in a local community rink. And you're telling Winnipeg to pull up your socks because things are really rough or you could be facing a bleak future. It just—it's—it it, sounds ridiculous.
3: It's a, bit, it's, it's a bit of a hollow threat that he was probably encouraged to do to pick up season ticket sales. Um, they want to get to the 13,000 season tickets that they had. If you recall when they moved there and they put tickets on sale, you couldn't buy them for a year had to guarantee that you'd buy them for three years. I think so, yeah, you're right. Which means that the owners didn't have an abundance of confidence in what they were doing, and they wanted to be assured that the frenzy of getting an NHL team back would provide comfort for at least three years. Now, that was a long time ago. That wasn't three years ago. But that would tell me that they had a little bit of concern about the market. I don't know how big Winnipeg is. Is it a million people?
1: Not uh, even. No, it wouldn't be that
3: many. And it's not like Hamilton where we got five hundred and thirty five thousand people, but within an hour's drive you've got another six million
1: people. Seven fifty in Winnipeg.
3: Seven
1: fifty. So you know what, with if you include Size the greater s- Hamilton area, not Toronto, but into Oakville, let's say, or there I mean we're similar. We're similar.
3: Oh, we're way ahead because within an hour you can you're probably got six million people.
1: Well, okay, within an hour, yes. And and the other thing that Winnipeg has
3: Winnipeg's only close to Dog River. I mean, it's not there's not a whole lot of big suburbs.
1: Anyone who's flown into Winnipeg, and I have once in the middle of winter, which is wrong time to do it, let me tell you. Uh everything they say about how cold it is at the corner of Portage and Maine in the winter, it, true. it is. Um, but the, the thing that Winnipeg has going for it and going against it is that when you fly into Winnipeg, there is nothing for a long time, no. and then there's Winnipeg. And so the Blue Bombers and the Jets, they are the... And the Moose on the AHL, they are in their own ecosystem. You're not... Unlike here where people are maybe Sabres fans or maybe they could be Senators fans or maybe they could be Red Wings fans or people around here became fans of the Tigers once upon a time or the Yankees or you know, pick whatever. Yep. In Winnipeg, you are a fan of the team because there's you don't drive to another you know, maybe maybe it's a but it's a two day voyage.
3: Well it's not like the Buffalo Sabres having a home game and they got more Leaf fans there than Sabre it, fans. Exactly.
1: Exactly. It there's is not a, a lot
3: of Edmonton fans driving to Winnipeg to watch a game.
1: It's its own place. And that's great that you have, for all intents and purposes, a captured market that every if you want to go to a game, you're coming to our game. Well, it, uh, The flip side is, if the people are not interested, there's no other options around to go to.
3: Well, here's Winnipeg. You know Bobby Hull's two sons, played for me. Yes. For the Moscow Models back in Flamborough and Bramford. And we were having a... a Couple tea after a game one night, and I said, How did you get a million dollars out of the WHA? He said, They said I had to go to Winnipeg. (laughs) (laughs) I think he said it like this They said I had to go to Winnipeg. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, I I do, I, I still wonder though, with this discussion again, with Gary Bettman now and the others from Winnipeg in this discussion about how, you know, we really need to pull up our socks or else, whatever or else means, is there still. I still believe that, and I don't know if I'm right on this, I still believe that Gary Bettman sees Arizona as his legacy project. Of some kind. There's others. He's he's succeeded in other warm weather places, yep. but there's been such every an on- other warm
3: weather place.
1: But there's been such an ongoing battle to make Arizona work that I really believe deep down he sees this as part of his reputation, part of his legacy. And honestly, Don, I don't know that anybody, if they left, is anybody turning and laughing at here. But ha ha ha, your Arizona thing. To-. I, I I just don't see it. I, I think that he could easily move that team and nobody would be pointing fingers at him and laughing or mocking him. It would be, you gave it everything you could and they left.
3: Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure after the Board of Governor meetings, when they have them down in that fancy place in Florida. And the Palms? Yeah, the maybe the night before or the night the meetings are done and a number of the owners are sitting around having a cigar and a double scotch sitting around. by you know, we got to put up with it. That's... You know, he's done so much, we're going to give him a pass on Arizona. But you're right, at some point in time, they're going to go, okay. So they're playing out of a 4,500-seat arena.
1: No prospects for the future yet. They
3: may as well be playing in Owen Sound. Yeah,
1: right? Liter- literally. Or Windsor. Nicer weather, but yes.
3: Yes. And no apparent prospects of starting a building. So... Those, I mean, you don't hook a valve stem up to an NHL arena and blow it up in fifteen minutes. I mean, it's got to be a two or three year project. Yes. So this thing is long term. So you
1: got to find the land, develop the land, yeah. design the building, build the building.
3: It, it's not. And they yeah. haven't announced that they're building one yet. So it's still, and those places now when they build them, like you look at Ottawa. Ottawa's not talking about going to downtown Ottawa. And just sticking a building up They talk about entertainment districts. Yes. That's what Edmonton did. That's what the Staples Center is. Calgary
1: is talking about doing that with with a new place and stuff. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I just really believe that if Gary Bettman were to retire in two years, I don't know. Has he talked I think he talked about, anyway, let's say Gary Bettman leaves in two years. If this is still going on in Arizona, I absolutely believe his successor moves that team out of their lickety-split. Yeah. So it's not even like you're building something here that's going to be built into the DNA and stick around and last forever. If there's not a building and there is not a place to play them, they will be gone.
3: Well, here's what I, So you may as
1: well jump the gun and get it done.
3: Here's what I don't understand, and, 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 I, and I don't know the intricacies of it. I wonder if the National Hockey League are subsidizing it in any way. Or is the owner like, yep, not. Well, yes, they are. Tell me who owns that franchise. Yes,
1: they are, Don. And maybe not directly, but once again, the NHL has sharing from the rich franchises help support the poorer franchise. So even if it's not a clear cut, we are propping you up. The fact that salary, cap the the players can't like this because the salary cap is based on revenues. You have a team like this, you're holding down the salary cap like everybody would want this thing to be moved, but anyway,
3: well, I talked to a guy that's been to the arena, and an NHL guy, and apparently their dressing rooms are big trailers attached to the building.
1: Well, they're not the prime tenant. No, I know, but that's why. So they don't even have like the built-in.
3: Like they're they're, they're not your mobile home. You're putting your skates on on a couch, but they're <laughs> like apparently they're trailers, and you can get some pretty decent trailers. But this is the National Hockey League
1: my nephew who's playing uh, pro hockey in Germany right now uh was just a finalist for defenseman of the year in the German league by the way uh congratulations max anyway um he played at Arizona State so now he's not an NHL player who knows what the future holds but um he, this was his arena and he was far from, not far from he was not an NHL player this is what it just it makes it's to me it's so nonsensical the whole thing is so nonsensical and now to turn around and be giving the stink eye to Winnipeg is just laughable. I mean, Winnipeg, yeah, sure, you can get, you can sell more seats, but somehow just
3: rattling some change to get them to buy seats. Yeah,
1: season well, but it just it, to me it sounds ludicrous. If you're in Winnipeg, you're laughing at the guy going, "Okay, go ahead, move us, <laughs> move us," while you keep Arizona in a garage.
3: Did you see the uh, documentary or movie Blackberry? Not yet. Watch it,
1: Don. No, we were just talking about the the business of the NHL. And it got me thinking about something that I I meant to bring up weeks ago, but there was never really a good segue or reason to do it. But this seems like a perfect time. There was a talk. I was hearing some player or agent talk somewhere the other day. And they were talking about the salary cap with the NHL and how one of the reasons why – this is a theory – why Canadian NHL teams have not won a Stanley Cup since 1993 is because it's really hard to get players to come because of taxes. You can go to Florida, you can go to Texas, you can go to other places where there's no state income tax, and that $10 million or $5 million contract you sign is worth a whole lot more there than a 10 or $5 million contract in Ontario or somewhere else in Canada where you're dinged for a whole lot more taxes. And the question was, should the NHL adjust the salary cap to factor in Tax bases to make it more level, because again, what is ten million dollars one place is not ten million dollars another place.
3: The Colonial Hockey League, where I, op- where I operated the Brantford Smoke, um, we had a salary cap, and the Americans had one. Uh, the Americans' salary cap was uh, thirteen hundred dollars less than ours. And it wasn't based on taxes, but it was based on the exchange right. so that we were on a level playing field. That's back in 1991 we figured that out. So the problem is it would become a rather tricky challenge, I think, when you started trading guys and say, does your con- if you get traded to Toronto from Dallas, does your contract get clawed back because now you're in a, in a country that has – Huge taxes. Now, you know, everybody's talked about that argument for Good a point. long time. And one of the things I look at when I look at that is, I mean, Toronto have Austin Matthews, John Tavares came. And here is one of the fundamental differences is, and again, I refer to Brian Burke's book. When he was in Toronto, he said, you know, when you're in uh, an American city, the, t- the premier players probably get a car deal you know, they're driving around in a Lexus or a Mercedes or something like that. In Toronto, everybody's got a car deal, mm-hmm. and likely the wife has got a car deal. So the the advantages that you can have through endorsements in a Canadian city, I would think would far exceed what Bedard can get in Chicago, for example, versus what he would get in Toronto. I don't know if that offsets it, but I also know that Florida is a right-to-work state, and they don't have state income tax, and... That come up during uh, when Steven Stam- Stamkos was trying to get lured to Toronto, and I understand one of the least major sponsors, I think it was Canadian Tire, yes, offered him an endorsement deal to offset the difference in taxes. So you can get creative. Should they? I don't know. That would be a pretty big challenge. I'm going to say, you know, we... No, your
1: point is, it's a good point, which I hadn't thought about, about trading a guy that all of a sudden, what do you do to balance that out? Because he's now taking less money, essentially, to... Uh, it, it w- well, yeah, taking less money, I suppose, to, to play in another state, and then you come here Do you have to give them a re- I don't know. That's a good point, though.
3: See, uh, you, you know, we talked about Gary Bettman, and uh, you got to take the good and the bad with Gary Bettman. I re- remember when my, fr- my friend Pat LaForge was running the Oilers. and remember when the dollar was just horrendous. And the National Hockey League made concessions to Canadian yep, teams. It did? to save those Canadian teams. They did the right thing. They said, this is unfair, this is unbalanced. And I forget exactly how they did it, but they addressed the exchange and said, you should be operating probably at an 85 cent dollar, and it's now 63, and they helped them. And they helped them survive or they may not have.
1: No, That is a very valid point. As I say, it's just the in free agency especially, that American teams. I don't know if that's the reason. It's a maybe you know next week if we think of it, if I remember, we can get into this because it it is a bizarre coincidence. I think it's a coincidence that no Canadian team has won a Stanley Cup since Gary Bettman took over as commissioner. It, I mean it is a bizarre thing to think and I don't believe that Gary Bettman is Dr. Evil sitting in his New York, you know, Headquarters rubbing his hands saying, How do we keep the Canadian teams from winning? I don't believe that. But it's a bizarre thing. There's got to be something going on that has kept Canadian teams from consistently being competitive, considering they've got all the money, they've got all the scouting staff, they've got all the backing. Surely, somewhere along the line.
3: Well, he's paying the referees off. No, I don't believe that. Of course, he's not. Don't Neither do that. I. No, but, no, no, I know, but I, but I know you're got being you've facetious. Got, you've got to try and come up with something, right? Just it
1: it and comes to a point when it's been thirty, it'll be thirty-one years this year. There's got to be some explanation for why that's happened, and I don't believe it's a conspiracy. There's just there's got to be some reason.
3: Do you know who Gary Bettman wants in the Stanley Cup Finals this year? The Toronto Maple Leafs and a Canadian team from the West. Mm. Do you wanna know my rationale? Sure. The Rogers deal's coming up. And they aren't getting that kind of dough out of Rogers okay. or anybody else unless there's a couple of Canadian teams. And that's the biggest NHL or that's the biggest T V payday the US have.
1: Okay, so if that were to happen though, that would be the worst possible thing for the NHL for that very reason. For thirty one years, a Canadian team can't win the cup. It's been 50, uh, 57 years since the Leafs would have been in the finals. And all of a sudden, when the TV deal is up, everything perfectly falls into place for them. That's that, bad that, for
3: TV? In the no, NHL?
1: but that's bad because now everyone is going to be saying, come on, now we do think that something fishy is going on. Now you've got Now it's the Kansas City Chiefs with Taylor Swift somehow having not a great season, Taylor Swift arrives, and look at that—they go right to win a Super Bowl. They don't get a single holding call in the in the Super Bowl, and they're the team that gets called for the most holding penalties all season in the NFL. Look at how everything falls. Again, I'm not arguing that there is a conspiracy to make them win. I'm saying when things happen a little too perfectly, you get people who start to wonder. And
3: well, let's see if it happens. Let's see if it happens. If that happens, you somebody could go. I smell a rat.
1: No, that's in Florida. Skunk.
3: The uh, and here's here's something. Else. You got, uh, I got ten seconds. Yep. If you were going to sign a ten million dollar contract, yes, in Toronto or a nine point seven million dollar contract in Tampa Bay to play hockey, where would you sign?
1: Uh, I would uh, hold out for a team in Hamilton and insist on signing here.
3: Clearwater Beach, golf on your off days.
1: Yeah, I know. There there are there are appeals.